Hello, church family. Uh, Please have 1 Kings 18 open there in front of you. And let's pray as we come to look at this great chapter of God's word. Our gracious Father, we thank you and praise you that you show yourself to be God. Please help us to see and respond to you as God of all and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had uh, the wonderful blessing of growing up in church and growing up uh, doing Sunday school or kids' church, then you will know that there's just those few stories of the Bible that are just great Sunday school stories. Uh, Of course, all of God's Word in kids' church is good, yes, Uh, but there's just these few stories that kids especially really love. Uh, They love the story, they love to draw it or act it out, uh, or they love the simple message that it teaches us about God. Uh, And one of those stories is definitely the story of King Eglon uh, in the book of Judges. If you know it, you're already smiling. Uh, And if you don't know it, it's the slightly comical but also gruesome story of a very large king who's assassinated uh, in the bathroom with a sword, and then the sword sinks into his belly and disappears. Uh, Today's passage is, without a doubt, it's just one of those great Sunday school passages of the Bible. It's another cracker of a story. It has so much to enjoy and so much to teach us as well. Now, we need to remember uh, where we're up to in the story of Elijah, our hero, uh, so that we can see what's happening in our passage today. So remember that uh, for these chapters, last week and this week and the next few weeks, we're looking at the north kingdom of God's people called Israel. Uh, Last week, we saw the short stories of of a few kings of Israel, but the story then slows down when it comes to Ahab, king of Israel. Why does the story slow down? It slows down, I think, because Ahab and his wife Jezebel are the epitome of evil and sin. Uh, Remember this in chapter 16. It says, But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, we heard about him a few weeks ago, as if that were a trivial matter, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then he proceeded to serve Baal, her god, and worship him. So Ahab is the worst king so far. He takes the sin of Israel to a whole new level. Following his wife Jezebel, he instates the worship of her god, Baal, one of the worst gods of all the nations. And so what does Yahweh, the true God of Israel, do? He sends the prophet Elijah, the hero we met last week, this hero of the faith. Look at chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Through Elijah, God sends a devastating drought, a famine against Israel for their sin of idolatry, for their worship of Baal. And thus begins the rivalry between Elijah, the prophet, and King Ahab. And so Elijah had to go on the run at that point. As we saw last week, during the famine, Elijah, he hides out at a flowing wadi for a time, and then he hides out at a widow's house, for a time, and God provides for him there as his prophet. Uh, but now, 
Now it's time for Elijah's comeback. After three years in hiding, three years of God's judgment on Israel, three years of terrible famine and drought, the prophet returns. And he does so in a big way. This is really one of those great stories of the Bible. It's a powerful showdown between Yahweh, the true God of Israel, and Baal, the false god that they worship. So you want to have your Bible open, uh, come along with us for the ride, for the story, and we'll see what God's word is showing us. And the story starts in chapter 18 with a call to confrontation. So look at it with me, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So it's time for Elijah's comeback, to come face to face with his arch enemy. It's time for now for the drought to break. It's time for God to show Ahab and all Israel that it's actually he who is in charge. He is the one who rules his creation. He withholds the rain and now he's going to give it. Baal, he's nothing. And so go and confront King Ahab, God says to Elijah. Now, Elijah's been hiding out for these three years, fleeing Ahab, fleeing Jezebel, so they don't kill him for speaking God's word. But God says, go anyway. And so what does Elijah do? Verse 2, so Elijah went. Risking his life, he obeys the word of God. And so Elijah goes, and then we get these coincidental circumstances. And I say they're coincidental, but they're actually not the circumstances that bring Elijah and Ahab together. So this drought, it's so bad that Ahab, he's finally run out of water for all his livestock, his animals. And so he and one of his officials goes out to look for water. So he goes off one way and he sends his, uh, the leader of the palace, the in charge of the palace, Obadiah, the other way. And they go out their separate ways to look for water in the land. Now, this is not the Obadiah who wrote the book of Obadiah in the Old Testament. This is another Obadiah. Uh, And we need to stop and look at this man for just a moment, Obadiah. Why? Well, because look at verse 3, halfway through. We didn't read it before. It says, Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord. See, at the moment, the the real drought in Israel is not a drought of water. The real drought in Israel is a drought of people who fear the Lord, who have stayed faithful to the true God of Israel. But here we have Obadiah in charge of Ahab's palace who greatly fears the Lord. We get almost no other descriptions of anyone like this in this part of the Bible. And we know he fears the Lord, how it says... Because he risks his life for God's prophets. So look at verse 4. He took 100 of God's prophets and he hid them away in a cave and gave them food and shelter. He secretly protected them from, from what? From Jezebel, Ahab's wife. Because here we learn for the first time that Jezebel has been trying to eradicate the worship of Yahweh, the true God, from Israel. She went on a campaign to slaughter any and every one of God's prophets. Probably she killed hundreds of them to shut them up, to stop them speaking God's word in Israel. This is state-based religious cleansing. And she did this while her prophets, the prophets of her gods, Baal and Asherah, well, they ate at her table. 
she fed them herself so that Israel would keep worshipping Baal and Asherah and not Yahweh, their true God. I told you, uh, we told you that these guys are the epitome of evil, aren't they? And this is how bad things in Israel were at this time. But Obadiah, Obadiah fears the Lord, not Jezebel. And he risks his life to set up this, this secret refugee camp and he protects and provides for God's chosen people. He reminds me of another man that we met in our gospel team this week in Philippians. We read about Epaphroditus who risked his life to help Paul to supply his needs while he was in prison. Both of these men remind me of what Jesus says. He says, do you know these words? Even if you give just a cup of cold water to a fellow disciple in my name, you will never lose your reward from God. Obadiah is a faithful man. He will not lose his reward. We should honor and imitate him. And I look forward to meeting him one day when Jesus returns. So Obadiah, he travels throughout the land looking for water. And then all of a sudden, well, it's not really all of a sudden. It's God's uh, ordering of events. He bumps into none other than Elijah. And Obadiah freaks out at this point. You see it in verse 9 and on. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Ahab is looking for you everywhere. He's been looking for you for years to kill you. And now I've seen you, and so he's going to kill me too. But Elijah says, don't worry. I'm not going to run away. I will present myself to Ahab today. You have my word. Go and tell him to meet me. And so without hesitation, Ahab comes to meet Elijah. And the tension in the air is thick at this moment. Look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, uh, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you destroyer of Israel? See, Ahab blames Elijah for the famine, for destroying Israel. And then when really he's the one to blame, look at uh, verse 18, Elijah's reply. Elijah replied, I have not destroyed Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. See, this famine is God's judgment on you, Ahab. It's your sin that's to blame for all of this. And now Elijah is set to prove it. And so he proposes a duel to Ahab, a confrontation, a showdown, a battle of the gods. In verse 19, he says, Go and get all Israel, and then go and get all the prophets of your gods, Baal and Asherah. Bring them together, and let's go up onto Mount Carmel. And it's there that we see this confronting and somewhat funny passage, actually. This story has it all. It's time for Baal versus Yahweh. So Ahab, Ahab goes and gets this huge crowd, uh, probably with thousands of Israelites and hundreds of prophets of Baal. Baal's side has many, but Yahweh's side, just one, just Elijah. And so they meet early in the morning up on Mount Carmel as the sun is rising and as the Mediterranean Sea, uh, they overlook it. And in verse 21, Elijah, he throws down the gauntlet. He lays out the challenge. Look at verse 21. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate or hobble between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. 
but if Baal, follow him. Stop flitting between the two gods, he says. Stop trying to worship both Yahweh and Baal. Choose one. And now let's prove which one is truly God, which one is worthy to be followed. So he sets the challenge. What's the challenge? Each side must set up their own altar. And then they must prepare a bull on that altar as a sacrifice. But don't light the fire, Elijah says. Instead, look at verse 24. Then you call on the name of your God, Baal, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, the God who answers with fire, the God who lights up the offering on the altar. He is God. That's the test to see who is really God. And they agree, and so they get to work. Elijah, in a mocking tone, says, you guys go first. There's so many of you, so you can go first. I'll let you go first. Uh, And look what they do in verse 26. So they, the prophets of Baal, took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, for hours, all morning, saying, Baal, answer us. But look at how the Bible puts it. Look at the choice of words. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. It's all meant to look a little bit pathetic. Sure, they're enthusiastic, but to Elijah and to those who know the true God of Israel, it's all a bit pitiful. And nothing happens for the whole morning. And so Elijah mocks them again. This is the really funny part of the story. We get to see the cheeky character of Elijah. Look at verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. He's far away, right? Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Or, as it could be translated, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's in the toilet. Or maybe he's on the road, it goes on. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up if you just shout a little bit louder. And you can tell what Elijah thinks of them, can't you? He thinks that what they're doing is stupid. That they're crying out to lifeless statues that they made. To a God who doesn't even exist. And so the prophets of Baal, they they decide to up the ante. That they start cutting into themselves until blood rushes over them. Because apparently that's what a God like Baal wants. Not so Yahweh. Verse 29 sums it up. All afternoon, they kept on raving. That's how we're meant to see this, raving into the air. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, sunset. But, again, there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. It would be funny if it wasn't so sad. As humanity worships their gods... No one is answering. No one is paying attention. They are dead and mute. They don't exist. The whole thing is pointless, futile. Baal's true colors have been shown. His performance is worse than dismal. He scores zero. He comes up totally empty. And so now it's Yahweh's turn. From verse 30 on, 
While the prophets of Baal are raving all afternoon, Elijah calls over the people of Israel and they watch as Elijah prepares his altar and his sacrifice. What does he do? He does some really significant things. Look at it with me. In verse 30, he repairs the Lord's altar. It seems that there used to be an altar for Yahweh here, but it's been torn down because Baal was their God now. But Elijah restores it. And in verse 31, he does this with 12 stones. Why 12? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And Yahweh was their God. He spoke to them. He blessed them. But here, Israel's torn down his altar. They don't even care about him. And then in verse 32, he does something a little bit weird. Uh, He digs a trench around the sacrifice. And then verse 34, he orders that four big pots of water be poured on top of the sacrifice. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm building a fire, I don't douse it in as much water as I can in order for it to burn well. Uh, But then he says, do it again, four more pots. And then he says, do it again, four more pots of water. And so 12 pots of water. There's that number 12 again, like the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 pots of water all up have been poured on this sacrifice that's meant to burn. See, Elijah is raising the stakes, isn't he? He's making it even harder for this sacrifice to burn. There's so much water that even the trench around it is full. How could anyone possibly light this sopping pile now? It's impossible. The odds are stacked completely against Yahweh. And then with this soaking wet sacrifice before him, with all eyes of Israel on him, Elijah prays. No chanting, no dancing, no theatrics, just these simple words. Verse 36. Elijah the prophet approached the altar and said, Yahweh God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, the name that God gave his people, they were meant to be worshipping him. Yahweh today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and you have turned their hearts back. What's Elijah's prayer? Show them who you really are, God. Show them that you are God and that I've done all of this according to your word and show them that you are turning their hearts back to you. You are inviting them to repent, to turn and believe and worship you again. Show them that you are powerful and that you are gracious and that you always call sinners Back to yourself. No theatrics. Just a few sentences of quiet prayer. And then look at verse 38. These words give me chills. Verse 38. It says, Then Yahweh's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering. But not just the bull, the wood, the stones and the dust. And it even licked up the water that was in the trench. I've made my fair share of backyard bonfires over the years, but let's just say that all of them combined are like a tiny spark compared to what God does here. This fire is so hot, so consuming, that nothing is left. 
Yahweh answers in mighty and unparalleled power. There is no contest. Yahweh has power. Baal, he is nothing. And so verse 39, how do the people respond? Probably the same way we all would. They fall face down on the ground and they say the only logical thing to say. Yahweh, he is God. And so for this moment, the people turn back to Yahweh, the true God of Israel. And for this moment, at least for now, at least some of Israel worships him and they do the right thing. And the right thing, the first right thing they do is something quite confronting and gruesome. Look at verse 40. They take the 450 prophets of Baal and they sentence them to death. They enact God's justice on them. The just punishment for idolatry and and for leading a whole nation of Israel astray, death. And so these prophets who have led Israel astray, they will do so no longer. And as awful as it is, we're meant to respond to this and say, yes, Yahweh is God. As sad as that is, that was the right thing for God's people to do at that time. And as if all of this wasn't enough, as if God hasn't already proved himself, Yahweh yet again, once more, shows his power and might. His power and might over a false god like Baal. He shows up Baal one last time. And he does what he said he would do all along. He breaks the drought. We're not going to look at this part of the passage in detail, uh, but we're, gonna, um, we're just going to see the last bit of the chapter where Elijah turns to King Ahab, uh, who's been there probably watching the whole time, and he says, well, you better jump in your chariot and go home, Ahab, because a rainstorm is coming. And it would have sounded a bit silly at the time, but let's see what happens. Have you ever stopped and, uh, and watched a massive storm come in and roll in over the horizon? Uh, it's actually a pretty cool experience, isn't it? Uh, well, as Elijah prays, the clouds roll in over the sea and a downpour falls over all Israel. No rain for three years, just as Elijah said, and now pouring rain, just as Elijah prays. And Elijah does all of it at the word of Yahweh, the true God of Israel. So much for Baal being the God of fertility and rain. All of this is meant to show Ahab the power and might of Yahweh, the true God of Israel. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who rules all creation. All of it is meant to show Baal to be nothing. All of it is meant to rebuke Ahab And call him to repent, to come back, to worship the one true God of Israel. And I think it would have been a humbling and even scary experience for Ahab that day. But we'll have to leave the story there for now. And we'll see what happens with Ahab and Jezebel in the coming weeks and whether they repent or not. But as we bring it together and as we draw some lessons from this chapter for us today... Well, again, there's so many things that we could say about this chapter of 1 Kings. But here's two things we see flowing out of these great words. The first is, yet again, 
The word of the Lord is true. Isn't that just the constant refrain of this book of 1 Kings? Everything that God says through Elijah comes true. Everything he speaks happens. He promises and he fulfills. And yet again in this chapter, God's track record proves faultless. And this should give us great confidence today. Great confidence that all that God has said will happen, will happen. Whatever the world might look like right now. One day Jesus will return in glory to judge all people and bring the justice that our world needs. And we can have great confidence that all that God has promised us in his word through Jesus will prove true. The forgiveness of sin through Jesus' death. Eternal life through his resurrection. The gift of his spirit living in us. The end of pain and death in a new creation where God will dwell with his people. All of it is ours and will be ours if we trust in Jesus. Because the word of the Lord is true and always proves true. But the second thing we see in this chapter is that the power of the Lord is great. That Yahweh is God and there is no other. Do you remember what Elijah said to Israel? He said, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And then they saw beyond a doubt that Yahweh is God and Baal, he is not. See, the power of the Lord is great and the power of idols is nothing because they are nothing. And so follow Yahweh, he alone is God. As we think about ourselves and think about if we're tempted by the empty religions of our world, if you are tempted by the religion of the world in some way, that, and it sounds intriguing or it sounds mystical or fulfilling, then don't be led astray to follow their so-called gods. Or when you are tempted by the many uh, kind of physical idols of our world today, of money or stuff or relationships or career or happiness or whatever it is, whatever you are tempted, whenever you are tempted to follow the idols of this world, if you hesitate or, or hobble between two opinions, as Elijah put it, then remember. Remember what happened on Mount Carmel that day. Remember Baal's lack of performance, his complete silence, his non-answer. He has no power. And remember that every idol that promises to give you joy or happiness or inner peace or life is exactly the same as him. Lifeless, meaningless, unable to give life or blessing or satisfaction. And then remember the power of the true God of Israel, the one true God of all the nations and all creation. Yahweh is his name, the Lord Almighty, who showed his power on Mount Carmel that day, who continues to show his power page after page of scripture and day after day of life. There is no one else with power like him. There is no one who should be feared like him. There is no one who satisfies like him, who blesses and saves the people who come to him through Jesus, his son. 
and gives forgiveness and eternal life. If Yahweh is God, follow him. Yahweh, he is God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the display that you give in this passage that shows us you are God, that you alone are God, and that you are worthy of all praise and worthy of all worship. Father, we praise you for this, and we praise you that we know your power and love all the more in the Lord Jesus, that you sent him to die for us, that he rose again to give us eternal life. Father, help us to know your power all the more and to trust in your word that is true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.